0: We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3. As we continue on in this epistle that Peter had written, we remember the audience that he's writing it to. It is the, it's the chosen exiles in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. They are not in their true homes, they are pilgrims, they are wandering just like we are. And Peter has given them instructions on how to live, to know that sorrow, struggle, Persecution is coming, but what? To keep your eyes on your inheritance. Keep your eyes on your future home. That's what he's told them. And then he's now in this section of Scripture where he's talking about how we're to live and how we're to live as Christians. And I I keep going back to uh, the first word in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. We, We cannot get away from that word. That word is therefore. We've mentioned it before. We've labored this point. That that word, therefore, is connecting what is happening before to what will follow. And what has happened before is that we are born again. As a result of being born again, Peter will now go into this next section on how we're to live. How we're to be different. How we're to not be like the world. So th- this is to the believer. That's to the, to the exile, to the chosen that he's writing to in this letter. These are the people that have been born again by that mercy that you just heard of. In that song from God and God alone. And we had, we had come through chapter 2 and we came to those maybe not so feel-good verses in chapter 2 that told us, told us that we are to submit to authority, to submit to ruling uh, uh, institutions. Why? Why? not because they deserve it, not because we agree with everything they are doing or saying, but because God is the supreme authority and ruler in the universe, and that every position, every person in authority has been placed there by the supreme one of authority. And when we submit to those institutions, we are not submitting to them, but to God. Now, there is an exception to the rule. You remember the exception to the rule, that you are to obey the ruling institution, the governing authorities, except... If they command you to do something God forbids, or they forbid you to do something God commands, then we're to obey God rather than men. That continued to trickle down into the ending of chapter 2, and it said that, listen, there are examples of people being treated unjustly. It uses the servant and the master, and it tells that the servant is to be respectful and to be submissive to the master when they treat them good, and when they treat them unreasonably, because their submission is to God. And we thought, well, that's not fair. I don't like that. I only treat people good that treat me good. And then he goes and pushes that point even farther and says, listen, you have to look to the authority and this supreme example, which is Christ. And that's why he ends chapter two with saying that you want to talk about being suffering unjustly. It was Christ. There's no one who suffered more unjustly than Christ. And what does the Bible say he did? He did not open his mouth. He did not slander back when being slandered. He did not revile when being reviled. But what did he do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges perfectly and righteously, which is God. That's our example that we're to to live by and to go with. And then he ties that in. And if you weren't here on Thursday, you... You missed, the, you missed the, that whole one that we all just kind of tiptoe around sometimes, but it is the, the roles of marriage and the, how the, the, the wife is to be submissive to the husband. The husband is to love the wife as Christ loves the church. And why are those roles so important? Because it's been given by God. There's no inferiority or superiority. It is equality with different roles and that is given by God alone. We, we talked about how that, that you can be equal and have different roles, which is what a marriage is, one union, one flesh, one body, but different roles. And we gave the supreme example of that with what? The Godhead, the Trinity, that they are equal, co-eternal, but they have different roles. We know that when Christ was on this earth, he said, it is not my will, but yours be done. I come to do the will of the Father. He, he, he took up on that role of the suffering servant. We know that Christ is God. There is no inequality there, but they took different roles. And this is where we come to today. He's going to go back to this point of when you're slandered, don't slander. When you are falsely accused, don't go and blow that witness as christ is our example and some of these things that we hear today are not the feel-good things <laughs> that we always like to hear but necessary because if you're a human being and you've got a breath in your lungs that means you've got a tongue and if you've got a tongue i can promise you this it's gotten you in trouble before and it probably will continue if we're not careful Let's read these verses in 1 Peter chapter 3. We will go all the way down to verse 12 tonight. We're going to do 8, 9, and 10, the first service, and finish up 11 and 12 this evening. Yes, we will be here this evening, 6.30. It says this in verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. You ready? Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. We'll go ahead and read 11 and 12. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous And his ears attend their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. Lord, we thank you for the privilege it is. Lord, let us never think it's a chore to come to your your place of worship, to gather it with like-minded people, and to hear your word. Let us know that that's a privilege that you've given us. And, Lord, let us understand the weight of the words in front of us. Lord, the words that we've just read, they're not our opinions. They're not just words of wisdom from some human. But they are the words that are breathed out by God. They are your words, Lord. There's life in these words. And we ask that you would open our eyes to the truths of these words. Lord, and we know there's hard truths in these words. We ask that you would pierce our souls Lord, convict us of sin that is in our life. And Lord, if we have uh, failed or continue to fail in this, Lord, we ask that you would give us uh, strength and and help of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would grow in sanctification. Lord, that we could honor you in all we do, including our mouth. Help us today, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We look at verse 8. He says, to sum up, He's going to recap all these characteristics that we've already seen in the previous uh, verses in the letter that Peter is undertaking here. We can even go back to chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, put aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and evil and slander. And then he tells us multiple places, don't slander. Uh, Be submissive. Be kind-hearted. He's coming back to this point. He's saying, Therefore, because you're born again, you're to be different. Your life is to be different than the world. We can't look at the world and say, hey, well, that's the way they treated me. So therefore, I treat them that way. We're different. That therefore at the start of chapter two is everything. Have you been born again by the supernatural work of God? Then if you have, this is the instruction. There's no asterisk beside this. There's no, well, if this, then maybe here's the exception to how you treat people. No, it doesn't say that. It says, therefore, this is how we're to act. To sum it all up, we're to be harmonious. In regards to the church and the body, we're to be like-minded or to have unity. Have you seen unity be lacking in churches? I have. And... When that is the case, it brings devastation, it brings destruction. But the Bible tells us that how precious that unity is in the sight of God. He tells us in Psalm 133, he says, how good and pleasant is it for brothers to dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down uh, upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. And he goes and he he likens it to the dew of Hermon, this mountain that had dew, and it would come down in, in just abundant amount. It is this abundant amount of goodness when the brothers and sisters dwell in unity. That's what he tells us to be. He also tells us that we're to be sympathetic or compassion. How much compassion do we have for people? We're very quick to give ourselves the judgment of charity, aren't we? We give ourselves the benefit of the doubts. When we start to judge ourselves, it's always with the lightest judgment. We can jer- uh, justify why we do things. We, we, can, we can explain it away. But when we look at others, we're not so quick to do that, are we? The judgment of charity has to go both ways. We're to be compassionate to people. The heart of a Christian, therefore, if you're born again, your heart is to be compassionate towards people. And if you want to read something this afternoon, read Romans chapter 12, 9 through 21. It's at the top of your sheet because Paul is going to parallel what we're talking about right here in great detail. The things that we're hearing here, Paul has already labored. Be kind-hearted, prefer one another, give honor to others. It's a preference towards others. Do you remember when we were talking about the church and some of the characteristics of the church? One of those things we talked about was to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. See, that's the intimacy of a church. I think it's very important that people in a church know them personally, each other personally. How do you weep with someone that you don't even know they go to your church? How do you weep with someone that you've never spoken to? How, how do you gather these personal relationships? The church is supposed to be an a intimate body of believers, to, go, to grow, to know each other, to be intimate with one another. That way when one weeps, we weep too. I've experienced that recently as well. That when people go through things, the heart and the characteristic of a church is that when we get a, a prayer request or a, a fellow believer is going through something and it's keeping them up at night and the tears won't stop falling and you know they're hurting and you know that they are devastated. Our job as a fellow believer is not just to say, okay, I'll pray for you really quickly and move on. It's to weep with them. We, we want to run. don't we? As, as people, don't we want to run when people are hurting? Like when you see somebody hurting, your first instinct is to be like, I just want to kind of stay away from that. I don't, I don't want to get involved in that. That's gonna, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm not really sure how to handle this. But that's not what the Bible tells a Christian to do. The Christian says, run. Run to those people that are hurting. You don't have to say a word. Put your arms around them and just say, I'm here for you. You weep, I'll weep with you. You hurt, I'll be here and hurt right along with you until God pulls us through this together. We're called to do this, to have compassion on people. When people stumble and fall, We're so quick to point out their faults. But what if we came with arms of compassion and was there for them? Not to endorse their sin, not to endorse their failures, but to know we've all fell short, fallen and failed, haven't we? How good does it feel to know that when you are in the deepest parts of your life, when people just come and give you a word of encouragement, wrap their arms around you, that's the call of a Christian. Therefore, as a believer, be compassionate on people. He goes on to tell us that we are to be brotherly. We just read in 1 Peter 1:22, it says that since you have obedience to the truth, purifies your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. The Bible also goes on to tell us that we know we've passed from death to life. Why? Because we love the brethren. First John will tell us that in great detail. If you don't have love for the brethren, we've got a serious problem. You've got to love the brethren. You've got to love the fellow believer. You have to love. That's the sign of a regenerate heart. He tells us to be kind-hearted. It means tender-hearted. We see an example of this in Ephesians 4, verse 32. It says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Have you ever failed God? Have you ever told God that you won't do something, and many, many times later you've still done that thing? What if God treated you and me with the same tenderheartedness and compassion that we treat others? I don't want to even think about that. We're to be tenderhearted, compassionate towards people. But then he goes on to tell us that we are to be humble in spirit. Here's my question, that the more that I realize who God is, and I, we are barely grasping the surface of this transcendent glory of God, but, and that's good because we have to realize there's a gap there that we can never bridge. He's not this close to us. He's not this close to us. It's a gap that we can't even comprehend the holiness of this God. But the more that I understand and the more that I see him for who he truly is, according to his word... Here's the question that I ask. How can anyone be saved by mercy? Know that it's nothing you've done. Know that you are in the grave. You aren't calling out from the grave. We go back to Lazarus all the time, don't we? Lazarus is dead. What's the Bible say that we are in sin? We're dead in sin. I ask this all the time. What can a dead man do? He can do nothing. Nothing. Dead men don't grab, dead men don't call out, dead men don't do any of that stuff. Lazarus is in the grave, but Christ came to him. Lazarus didn't say, please set me free. Can't do that. But he comes to the grave, and he says, Lazarus, very important, very intimate, and he come forward. It's a sovereign act of God. Lazarus doesn't come out of that grave and say, I did it. Look at me. I set myself free. Look at me. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Look at how good of choice I made. Look at how great I was. He would never say that. He knew that he was humble in spirit because it was by grace and grace alone that he was set free and brought to life. That is the same story with salvation. You couldn't save yourself. You are dead You don't reach, you don't grab in that state, but Christ comes to you, invades your soul, brings you from death to life when he calls your name. If you truly know that, how in the world for one second of your life could you have any pride in yourself? it's It's a remarkable thought. What could you ever say? Look how good I was, look how good I am. What could you, you can't. The more you understand who God is, the more your soul and your spirit will be humble. Here's how humble we should be. That breath you just took, it's a gift of God. You didn't take that on your own because as quickly as you took it, He could take it away. When you move, Some are holding papers, some are moving their heads, some are looking at me, some are blinking. You did that because of God. You can't do that on your own. It is in him that you live and move and have your being. How in the world could you ever be prideful or arrogant as a Christian? He says you're called to be humble in spirit. To clothe yourself in humility. Go back through that list. Take a snapshot of the last month of your life. How many of those do you check off the list? If you're a born-again believer, go back to the first verse in chapter 2, therefore, these are the things that a Christian is to display. And if you're not displaying this and you feel that conviction, that's good. The conviction of the Spirit is good because He only convicts those He dwells in. And He can help us with this. But then he sets his attention to verse 9. You see, those are, those are characteristics of not lashing out, not acting like the world. Think about how he's describing it, tender-hearted, kind, gentle. And then he goes to verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Wait a minute. You see how, you see how that just took a whole different turn? I mean, maybe you're sitting here and I've done this because I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands. Has anybody ever insulted you? Yes, it's okay. Have you ever repaid that insult with an insult? We can take this with enemies. We can take this with our spouses, right? We get into arguments. What do you want to do? You just want to get that last word and you want to dig it in, don't you? When, you, when you're in an argument, you want to say the most hurtful thing to the person you're opposing. This is what we do. You've insulted me, so then it's only right that I insult you back. That goes to the ungodly. That goes to the pagan. Can I draw your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1? The first word that says, therefore. You've been born again, therefore. That's not how we're to act. You're to be set apart. You're to be different. I'm going to be different. It's the hardest thing in the world, isn't it? Doesn't it go against our human nature? When someone says something to you, when someone treats you a certain way, in our fallen state, our reaction is to what? Okay, it's on. You did it to me, I'm going to do it to you. And Peter, through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, says, No. Maybe you've sat here today and you've said, but you don't understand. You don't know what he said to me, Lord. Okay. <laughs> You're telling God something he doesn't know. I get it. You don't know, God. You don't know how hurtful that was. You don't know how untrue that was. So therefore, I have the right to do that. You never had that right. And you never will have that right. Right. Isn't that hard? Isn't that hard to hear? Again, who does he go back to? He goes back to Christ. If you think you've been suffering unjustly, look to the Christ, the perfect Savior of the world who did not revile when being reviled, who did not insult when he was insulted, but entrusted himself to the Father. Do you trust yourself? Do I trust myself to the Father when people do these things to us? Because we've learned this and we've labored this point that revenge and vengeance is not yours. It never has been. Romans 12, it, it'll, it'll exp, explain that explicitly. You've, you've never had the right to revenge. It's not yours. It's God's. And it's the hardest thing to bite your tongue sometimes or to respond kindly. But that's what we're commanded to do. In a sense, we're saying, God, you're the one who judges righteously. God, you're the one who vindicates your people perfectly. You're the one who distributes perfect revenge and vengeance. It's yours. So I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. Hardest thing I can do is not say something right now to these people, but I trust you as Christ is leading by example. Now, you may be reading this and you may say, okay, okay, I can do this. I can do it. I'll just bite my tongue. I won't say anything in return. I'll live a life that God's calling me to do. I won't. I won't slander. I won't insult. I won't throw little jabs. I won't, I won't do any of that stuff. Good. We're all good. But that's not how the verse ends. Because he takes it a step farther. He says not return an evil for evil or insult for insult, but shall we? Shall we go there or are you ready to call it a day? But giving a blessing instead. Anybody hear that and think that is almost at times impossible. It is in the flesh. Because it's our nature to respond as those respond to us. That's our nature. The Bible gives us that example over and over. What good is it if you as a Christian respond the same way that a non-believer does? They're good to people that are good to them. Right? You can go out to a pagan. You can go out to the biggest unbeliever you've ever seen, and if someone treats them good, they're going to treat them good in return. There's, there's nothing there. You're not doing anything. There's no difference. There's no separation. There's no sanctification. It's hard in the flesh. If you get into the flesh and you say, I have to do this, and you do everything you can try to do on your own power, you will fail. In your flesh, in your nature, you cannot do this. That's why it sounds impossible. May I draw your attention back to chapter 2, verse the first verse, and the first word, it says, therefore. What does the therefore mean? You've been born again. By what? Not by natural means. By supernatural means. God has changed the disposition of your hearts, the disposition of your souls and your minds. He has He has put in Him the third part of the Godhead to dwell in you. He is your help. You can't do this in your own nature, but thanks be to God, therefore, you've been born again by the supernature. The supernatural work of God. So as a believer, you're not pulling on your own nature. You're not pulling on your own strength. You're pulling on his. It is only by God that you can do this. It is only by supernatural means you can do this. Not just to not insult, but to give a a blessing as well. Listen to a few verses. Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4.12. They've been persecuted. They've been attacked in their work. And he says, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. It's amazing. Think about all the things that Paul went through, all the persecutions. And he said, we bless them. How do you do that? Again, don't look at yourself. Look to God. Go back to that. Therefore, you are born again. It's of supernature. It's not of yourself. To bless them. Listen to what Matthew chapter 5, 9 through 16 says. Listen to this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you. You think that? Blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness. Don't get down in the dumps, but thank God that he's counted you worthy to suffer for his name. These are the words of Christ. He's giving this sermon. Blessed are you. Can you imagine being on that mountain that day and hearing those words of Christ? The same words apply to you and I today who are born again. Blessed are you. When the people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Let me tell you this. Let me say this. Me and Taylor were talking about this on the way home the other night. I'm just going to say this for what it's worth. Give me a minute and then we'll continue with the text. Of all my 36 years, I'm older than that, but I'm just talking about before God really opened my eyes to his truth. For 36 years of sitting in a church and hearing the message that was being preached, I never faced really persecution i didn't not one time really and then i say well well that's just because i'm not witnessing enough think about this if you can be in church for 36 years and the doctrine that you preach doesn't elicit any rebuttal doesn't bring any persecution that tells you something because you read these verses that say If you suffer, it's coming, consider it it all glory to God. He says, if you are the, the godly, we'll suffer persecution. And I'm sitting there thinking, where's the persecution? This is not bad at all. But the moment that you start to give all glory to God, and the second that you start to say that God is sovereign over all, Do you know what happens? The words of the Bible come true. I've never been attacked so much in my entire life until I started claiming the sovereignty and the deity and the the, the decrees of God and His mercy and mercy alone that all things are from Him and through Him. Not once before did I feel what I feel now. And it's only when you start to see the truth of the Bible that these things come to pass. Take heart. Blessed are you who suffer for his name. It says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he goes in to say, you're the salt of the earth, and he says, you're the light of the world. And what does he say? Let your light shine before men. You see, he's linking your persecution and how you respond to let your light shine. You'll be persecuted, don't slander, don't lose your witness. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're to respond as God has called us to respond so that they would see that response and glorify God. It takes one second to lose that witness, doesn't it? It takes one second for you to snap off and fly off the hinges. And the God that you proclaim doesn't look the same to the people that you're around. You're not doing it for you. You're doing it for the glory of God. It goes in Luke 6 really quickly, verse 26 through 36. It says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. But I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. There he comes back again. It's not just enough to not say bad things about them. It's not just enough to just answer appropriately, but you have to bless them. Pray for those who mistreat you. Have you done that? Have you prayed for them? That's a way that you can bless them. Your blessing can be in prayer. How hard is it for someone to viciously attack you, persecute you, and you call out to the Father on behalf of them? How can you do that? You can't do it on your own nature. But by the supernatural work of God, you can. Again, remember what we talked about with submitting to authority. You're not, you, sometimes we, get look, we look at their face and we say, I can't submit to that authority because I just don't like his face. I don't like what he says. I don't. And we may do the same thing. I can't ever pray for that person because I can see that smirk. I can see that, that little smile. I can see them thinking they got the last word. I can see the, the joy in their face. But the Bible says, peel it all back. And you know who's behind all that that you're doing this for? Not for them, but for God. Therefore, you've been born again. He says that in Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Let me finish up here in Luke 6. He says, Give to them who, anyone who asks, and whoever takes that, what is yours? Do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. Here's the quiz of the day. What's the first word in 1 Peter chapter 2? It's therefore. You've been born again. You're not of this world. These are words that are hard, but can be accomplished with the help of the Holy Spirit. He says this, for you are called for this very purpose. Do you remember a few sermons back? It said that we're not only called for salvation, but we're called for suffering. We know that all things work together for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We know there's an effectual call of all His people that come to Him when He calls in salvation. We know that the Bible says that in heaven, in Revelation 17, 14, we know who's in heaven. It's very simple. It says in heaven is the called, the chosen, and the faithful. That's who's in heaven. Not everybody's called the same or everyone would be in heaven. Not everybody's chosen or everyone would be in heaven. It's the called. It's the chosen. It's the faithful, those who are in heaven. Not only have you been called into salvation, you've been called to suffer. You've been called to live this life. You've been called to respond the way that God has called you to respond. Listen to what Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 4 says. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. What calling is that? That's the call of a Christian. And look how now he dives in. He says, this is the calling that you've been called. You're to walk in this manner. And look what he says. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to persevere the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in the hope of your calling. You're called to eternity for those who are his people. You're called by that effectual call, but you're also called to live a life worthy of the manner that he's called you. And it's all these characteristics. Called to suffer, but also called to respond appropriately. Have you tried to do it on your own? I think that's where it comes down to. Because in those moments the flesh rages, doesn't it? The flesh rages. But in these moments, we're to stop. Pray. Think about God, who to we are truly submitting to. That's tough but it's what we're called to do. You've been called to that purpose. You know that? We can't get away from that. If you're a believer, if you're the therefore, if you've been born again, there's not an asterisk and said, that doesn't apply to me. It applies to you. These aren't the words of a human being. These are the words of God. That God has called you to this, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. You've been called. You're an ambassador for Christ. You're to represent Him as he sets the example. Now, we listen to this, the last verse here. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, what he's saying here is this, that we are to love life. Yes, we have a hope in heaven. Yes, we have an inheritance that we're to keep our eyes on. The Bible tells us over and over, looking for that blessed hope, keep our eyes on the living hope that we have. Yes, heaven is our home. We're just exiles here like these people are that he's writing to. But he also tells us that we're to love life. We're to love life and to understand it's a gift from God. God has given us life. Your number of days has been decreed before you took one. There's nothing that you can do. You can't say, well, if I'd have been there or this would have happened here or I would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. No, 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 no. God is sovereign. He's decreed all things. Every leaf has fallen perfectly. Plan A is running flawlessly, full steam ahead. There's never been a plan B. You won't live one second longer than you are to live. We can't say, well, they died too soon. They didn't. They died in the perfect time by God as he was designed or he destined them to die. And life will be filled with good. Have Have you had good in your life? I think about good times in my life. I think about good memories in my life. I think about all the, the, you know, I think about this church. And four years ago, we started this whole thing by the the grace of God. There's been great. I mean, some of the greatest things I've ever seen have been in these last four years, some of the greatest memories we've had. I can go through and, and think about all the good memories we've had with people. But I would be lying if I told you it was all good. Because there were many nights when it was everything you wanted to do to keep going. She will attest to that. Let me tell you this story. I've told it before, but let me say it again. Here's how ignorant I was in my knowledge of God. I remember that some of our originals are here. Jalen and Dylan on the back there, they're our, first, they're our originals. They've been here longer than anybody. But there were times... Where it would just be before they come in different times. It'd be times where it'd just be me and Taylor and the kids. Kids don't like it when when you preach to them at home and at church. I've preached to, I remember one Sunday that everybody was out of town and a couple that I had invited from work showed up and it was me and four guests. (laughs) That's a little awkward. They know I'm talking to them. No one else is here. There were times where there was nobody. And I would say, this is how silly I am. Me and Zeke were talking before church. Sometimes we say things in the past that we don't think, we hope no one remembers. I'm confessing this. I remember telling Taylor, we would come and I would say, here's what we're going to do. Listen to this. If no one knew... Shows up at this place tonight. I'm done. That's it. I'm done. And it would be like five minutes before church thinking, okay, what are we going to do next? And at that place, if those who were there, you had to come upstairs. And it would just be a few minutes before church. And somebody I've never seen in my entire life just happened to be wandering down stairs would just come up and say, hey, we, we were just out walking around, and we saw you guys were up here. Can we come in tonight? And we kept going. And I thought, okay. And then I would get discouraged again, and I probably did this two or three times. And you know what the craziest thing was? Every time somebody that I'd never seen in my entire life would come up on those nights... And we'd keep going and we're here today it's not always been good there's been a heartache but the more that i grow in the knowledge of god that i am coming to learn to love life even in the hardest days because they are decreed by god they are given by god they are for his purpose he's refining my faith he says that we are to love life even in those moments we talked about when you have someone there with you and you're weeping your eyes out God has put you in that place, in that moment, in that season. And he's trying that faith. He's refining that faith for your good, What to love life. Peter will quote here from Psalm 34. This is these, verse 10 through 12 of Psalm 34. And he says, the one who desires life and to love and to see good days. Now he's saying, listen, if you want to have some peaceful days, if you want to do your best to live peacefully in this life, Here's something you got to do. And it ties in with everything we've been talking about. A person must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. How many days have been turned to sorrow because of our tongues? How many times has peace been on the back burner because of our tongues and how we've responded? You know, it says here to keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. May I take you to chapter 2 of 1 Peter really quickly? Let's go past the first word. Therefore, because you've been born again, put aside all malice and deceit. Think about this Who is the father of lies? The devil. The term we get devil is from the Greek word diablos, and that word means slanderer. You see, he's telling us to keep our tongue from evil. And that word that we get devil from, who is our adversary, who is our enemy, who is, who is uh, just the person that is out and about as a line trying to destroy. That's his characteristic is to lie and to slander. And we as Christians, when we let our tongue do that and we begin to slander, do you see what we're doing? We are doing the same thing. We're engaging in the same activity that describes the devil. His name's slander. That's not who we are. He's not our father. We're not to do those things. Every time, think about this the next time you go to slander or say something evil. You're doing and engaging in the same thing that describes the devil. John 8 tells us he's the father of all lies. There's no truth in him. He's all deceit. But you've been born again. We've all failed on this so bad because James 3 will tell us this. He says that in James 3 verses 1 through 12, it says, Lot not many of you become teachers, my brother, knowing that such as will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bribe the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits in the horse's mouth so they will obey us, we direct the entire body as well. Look at the ships, although they are great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life, and it is set on fire by hell. For every species of birds and of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. Are you going to bless Him today? I am. But look what it continues to say. And with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. You can't come here today and praise God and then tomorrow curse men. Have you ever set fires in your life? By the tongue, seems like a small word, and it explodes. You know, the Bible also tells us the state of our unregenerate heart before Christ. He tells us this in Romans chapter 3. Listen to what he says, and the tongue is in there. It is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the paths of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You see the state of the unregenerate person? Poison. Can't control it. 1 Peter 2 says, therefore. It's a battle. It's a battle. You don't try to do it on your own. I don't try to do it on my own. We stop and we pray for the Holy Spirit to help us and guide us because we are in obedience to Christ. Now I want to end you with this. I want to take you to Isaiah chapter 6. I love this text. I will tell you this in a brief uh, little quick blurb here. This text right here is a great way to get a Jehovah's Witness to leave your door quickly. Because what they do is you take them here and they'll say, yeah, this is Yahweh high on his throne in Isaiah 6. Yeah, that's God. And then you take them to John. I think it's 12 or 13, chapter 12 or 13. And it says that Isaiah saw Jesus. That's because Jesus is God. The same vision here—he's seeing Christ because it's the Godhead. There's another scriptures that will send him running, but we're here. Listen to this: In the year of King Uzziah's death, this is Isaiah's vision. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face; with two he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. I was talking about this with our kids the other day in Bible. Let me just mention this. You've heard it before, but it's important. These seraphim were created to be in the presence of God. That God created these angels, these seraphim, and they were designed. When they are created, they are designed to be in the holy presence of God. And it says they have six wings made to be in his presence. But look what the wings do. I love this. It says with two of their wings, they covered their eyes. Why would they do that? These creatures who were designed to be in the presence of God Almighty could not stand to look at his glory. His glory was so overwhelming to them that with two of their wings, they had to cover their eyes from the glory and the transcendent radiance of this God. Think about that. That the angels who are flying around his throne, their wings are covering their eyes because of the transcendent glory of the God that they are in the presence of. We have no idea how holy he is. We have no idea how high and lifted up he is. But these angels who are in his presence don't even look at him. What a God we serve. He says that With two, they covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. This goes back to when Moses is being spoken to out of the burning bush. You all know this. We've covered it before. But when Moses is there in in the presence of Yahweh, in presence of the great I Am, what does he tell Moses to do? Take off your sandals, Moses, because the place that you're standing is holy ground. And now these angels are in the most holy ground that you can be in the presence of God. Not only are their eyes covered because they can't bear to see the glory of God, but their feet are covered because of the holiness of the ground that they're standing on. And with the two other wings, it says they flew. In honor and reverence to God, they have two wings that still allow them to carry out the function and the duty that God has called them to do. What a sight this is. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I say it every time. Let me get it in. I've heard it before. You'll see that around the throne, they are not saying joy, joy, joy. They are not saying Goodness, goodness, goodness. They are not saying mercy, mercy, mercy. They are not saying love, love, love. They are not saying any of those attributes of God. But what are they saying? Holy. We've talked about it so much. The holiness of God is the characteristic of God that makes him God. He's other than. He's set apart. The fact that he's all-knowing is because he's holy. There's no one like him. The fact that he's sovereign is because he's holy. There's no, one, uh, there's no other one who's uh, sovereign. All of His characteristics, His immutability, all the things that we could list come from His holiness. And that is what is being sung and and praised around the throne of God. Holy, holy, holy. That's what makes God God, is His holiness. The whole earth is full of His glory. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah sees this. He sees who God is, and, and that's how it is with us. When we truly begin to see the glory of God, when you truly begin to see who God is, then you truly understand who you are. When you see who God is, you begin to understand of the vast difference in the distance between the sovereign God of the world and us as creatures. And What does Isaiah say? What's the first thing he notices when he sees the glory of God? He says, woe is me. That's what worship is. It's falling in reverence before this holy God. Woe is me, for I am ruined. And what what does he say next? Because I am a man of unclean lips. That's what he notices when he sees the transcendent glory of God. That the things he's spoken, the things that's come out of his mouth, when compared to the glory of God, are so unclean. He says, Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Do you see the weight that's put on the mouth? Do you see the weight that's put on the tongue? That when Isaiah sees this glory of God, he says, I'm undone, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. My mouth has spoken such things that are so contrary to you. What is our mouth meant to do? Psalm 150, the last verse of the book of Psalm, it says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. When we go to pray, what does He say? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name, or a holy be Your name. It is the duty of a Christian not to spend his time or her time slandering and in deceit, which is what the devil does. But to be ambassadors for Christ, and our mouths should continuously be a song of praise for the God who redeemed us. It should be. Praise, gratitude, encouraging, uplifting that we honor God with our words. The last thing, the very last thing. We did a message a long time ago in the old church. We kind of brushed it back up a few uh, sermons ago when we were talking about the mouth and the tongue. But we've compared that the tongue is either a sword or a stitch. You guys remember that. Your mouth will either cut it will slice it will open deep wounds and cause deep pain to people or it's a stitch where your words will go and bind those wounds as the word says it will And as we leave here today and we go into the world you know what God has called us to do It's to this you've been called to not dishonor the name of God. And when we act like the world and we slander and we insult, and we, you're not bringing any honor to the name of God. You're causing it great shame. But we're to be an ambassador. Speak the truth. Speak the things that God has called us to speak. Live as He's called us to live. And we are to take our words and not create wounds, but to heal them up. To heal them. And you know what I mean. You all know what I mean. If you're like me, you've been on the end, you've had the sword in your hand, and you've caused some wounds by your words. But I think if I know you like I think I do, I think you've also had the stitch. And I think there's been times where you've known the power of those mending words. Let me end with this. Have you ever had wounds in your life? Been hurt by people? Had spiritual wounds that you have no idea how they will be closed. They're open, they're bleeding, they're sore, you're undone, you need healing. And maybe the world has come and gassed you open more. Maybe the words of people have hurt you more. Maybe the words of the accuser has hurt you more. But there's no words that are a greater stitch to your wounds than the words. Of the living God. If you want your wounds to be binded up, if you want your wounds to be healed, the words of humans are good. We're to do that. But if you want ultimate healing from your wounds, the only words that can do that are found in these words the words of the living God. Let us pray lord we thank you for this word we thank you for this day god help us we pray lord this is very difficult for us to do so often in our lives lord so often we try to do it on our own try to resolve it in the flesh but god we pray today that you would open our eyes to the truths of your word And Lord, we would know that the only way that we can do this is through the supernatural work of you and the Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm sorry for the times that I've failed you. I have not brought honor and glory to your name. Lord, I've, I've impacted and affected the ambassadorship that you've called me to be. God, please help us. God, let us know that we've been called to imitate you. God, let us understand the weight of our words, that our words are to be to glorify you, to edify you and to help our fellow people. And God, let us pray today that our lives are changed. Our excuses are gone, our justification for our reasoning behind it is gone. Lord, that we would not look to people, but we would look to you of why we are in obedience to your word. God, thank you for the words that you've spoken to us that have healed us. Lord, when you've spoken to our souls, let there be light and there was light. There's no greater healing. When you tell us we're forgiven, there's no greater words that cause our wounds to be bound. God, when you tell us that you will never leave us nor forsake us, then you're the shepherd who holds us. You're the guardian of our souls. Lord, there's no greater words of healing. Let us understand that today. And help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.